As we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel in the 12th chapter of Matthew today, I think I've sounded a little bit like a broken record when I kept, keep talking about antagonism and opposition to Jesus, but that is what we've been seeing in these last weeks, and it really climaxes in a way in our passage today, verses 22 through 37. It will calm down in a sense, the, at least in the sense of what is given us in the gospel as in chapter 13 and following we move into some passages of teaching and more miracles and other things taking place and then further on quite a ways it will the conflict will then break out of course into the open as Jesus moves closer to the cross but certainly the clash of two great powers can be seen in the passage I'll read now and ask you to follow as we look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew's witness to Christ as the Holy Spirit worked through this man and showed him how to recall things that he had been part of. Matthew 12, beginning at 22. Then they brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished, and they said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven by, of men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit, will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored in him, and the evil man evil things out of the evil stored in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted. By your words... You will be condemned. And this is 
the holy word of God, true in every way and infallible in all that it teaches. September 11, 2001 might be called, among many other things, the day that America rediscovered evil. At least I believe it was the day that we started talking openly about the subject once more and about the personality that is behind evil in this world. The terror attacks that reduced the World Trade Towers into a heap of rubble in New York City came at a time in history when intellectual responses or even moral and spiritual or religious responses to evil were more confused in terms of the message people heard than they've been for centuries. With the almost total decline of a broad Christian consensus of understanding in American society, people no longer have that sort of shared idea that there even is such a thing as primal evil. And so-called postmodern people who change what they think is truth as often as they change clothes have a chronic inability to call anything evil or to say that this person or this movement is my enemy in this world. You can't judge anything because nothing is certain. However, the Bible teaches that we are indeed opposed by a live, intelligent, cunning enemy, one who has outlived the oldest Christian and can outwit the shrewdest Christian. And yet, powerful though he is, Satan is not all-powerful. And Jesus Christ is the one who came to seal his decisive defeat in the battle arena of history and for eternity. The great mystery about what evil is, how it originated, these are some of the biggest questions that theology or the Bible ever deals with. And there is still mystery there, things that are not revealed. And yet we have for us revealed how it is that God can still tolerate its horrors because we see it all resolved in the biblical truth of God in Christ overcoming evil at the cross. C.S. Lewis, who wrote about these matters quite a bit, often said that as long as society or individuals could talk about the devil and keep him in their mind as a comic figure, as long as the popular imagination could sort of chuckle about the notion of Satan as the devil in a red suit of tights with hoofs and horns and a pitchfork, as long as that is what you consider and you are able to hold it off at a distance because it's laughable, you are subject to this one who is laughing to himself. You are thinking about him exactly the way he wants you to because it is when you take him seriously And when you see evil as God sees it, having a personal face, not the face of Osama bin Laden, but someone far greater than he, when you see our adversary, whom the Bible gives various names, Lucifer, Satan, 
the fallen angel, Beelzebub, only then will you really know that real evil can be and is banished by the grace of God working in Jesus Christ and no other way. Now, Matthew 12, 22 and following shows Jesus actually facing off with Satan. He's actually talking to a group of Pharisees, temple leaders, scholars in religion. But you make no mistake, it's a boxing match with Satan that we have here. Because he owned the minds of these religious leaders of temple Judaism. That is not to say, and let us carefully, carefully understand, because it so often is misunderstood. We do not say that Satan inhabited Judaism or that the Jewish people as a whole of the New Testament age or any age are are his pawns. But these leaders, the leadership, were owned and bowed completely before the rule of the evil one. They so vehemently rejected Jesus as the Messiah of Israel that they went to this extreme now to ascribe his works to the devil. And in doing so, they actually just proved that their own thoughts and their own actions were the personification of evil. The Pharisees said, it's time for a big lie. You know, if you're not winning in a discussion, one tactic is to to throw out something so flamboyant or so, so uh, spectacular and attention-getting that, that then all the discussion goes to that. And it doesn't have to be true. <clears throat> it just has to be able to arouse attention. So if you say, Jesus is a devil, it doesn't matter whether you can prove it. It's really, it, it really operates exactly like what is done in political campaigns now all the time since we're just past that season. You know, you, you see it how in the negative campaigning about 48 hours or 72 hours before we go to the polls, one side will often pull out the most negative blow that it has against its opponent and put it on TV. And it doesn't have to build a detailed case. It just has to say something like, my opponent is a devil. It doesn't have to prove it because the point is that thing is ugly enough and smelly enough that it will stick to the person in some small measure and he will not be able to clean it off before people get to the polls and make up their mind. That's what the Pharisees are doing. A big lie. They can't defeat Jesus any other way, so call him a devil. And Scripture here paints for us a world sharply divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is advancing, going forward, bringing truth, bringing light, delivering people, moving towards that appointment with the cross, and a kingdom that was already there, which we could call the domain of the prince of this world. And the clear lesson that comes out of our text and many other places as well is you cannot be in both kingdoms at the same time. You cannot owe allegiance to both kingdoms at the same time. And we are challenged, I think, as we hear this text today, to know exactly where we stand in relation to these two kings and two opposing kingdoms. 
And so I stated in the first place today as we look at Matthew 12, 22 to 29, this lesson, Christ's kingdom came to smash, to pull down, to tear up by the roots. Christ's kingdom came to smash Satan's rule over humanity. There was a cosmic battle going on. Something big behind the scenes, behind, he certainly had a real historical life, and he certainly touched real people and, and said words that could be heard and witnessed, but behind the visible life of Jesus, there was this vast, invisible battle going on where he was attacking a kingdom. Now, right away, we see in this text how the grip of evil on a human life while it is distinct from physical disease, and physical disease is often a completely separate thing, that the two can come together. Evil or demonic possession can sort of drag illness in in its wake. That's not to say that every illness in the Bible is caused by demonic possession. It's, the Bible is very precise when Jesus heals. If there's a demon involved, it says that. If the person was merely blind or sick with a fever, it says that. They're not always going together, but many times when Satan disrupts a life, he's going to pull into that life every kind of ruinous thing, every kind of catastrophic problem that he can pull in. And did you, did you ever think about, I thought about this man in this text, almost as if I heard this text for the first time this week. He was blind and he was mute. I've known blind people. I've never known anyone who was blind and mute. Think about that. What kind of a life would that be? You can't see the world around you, and any thought that would enter your mind, you can't express it. You can hear, I assume, but you're in a prison. Blind and mute. What a terrible condition. And think about exactly how spectacular the deliverance of such a person would be. Suddenly he can see and he can talk. This was indeed one of the more spectacular healings. Blindness was, was frequently healed. But here's a twofold healing, and it's accomplished as Jesus exorcises the demon. A man who was demon-possessed. The demon had to be removed. And by the power of God, he was. And when he was, the people said, whoa, we've never seen this before. Could the man who does this actually be, and look what they called him, the son of David? See, they were in touch with their history a little bit. They didn't call him Messiah, but that's what they meant. Could he be David's heir? Why, he's the greatest thing we've ever seen. And it was looking more and more to the crowds as if Jesus was something far more advanced than just a great healer. Could he be the second David who will come to rule over us? Well, you see, when the Pharisees heard that, they knew the desperation of their situation. They knew they were losing the crowds. Here was something that had happened by supernatural authority. I don't think any Pharisee would have disputed that. Some great authority cast this demon out. Whose is the question? God's? Or was it something from the pit of hell? 
You know, the Bible does make it clear, and I don't have time to elaborate this very much, but there's recognition in both the Old Testament and the New that things that are like miracles or great wonders or, or healings take place that are not by the power of God or by a prophet of God or by Jesus. That's why the Old Testament has warnings, numerous warnings against sorcery and witchcraft and magic, things that are condemned even by stoning and death because they are such a violation of dealing. They're really occult matters that are opposed to God. The New Testament tells similar things about what in one place are called lying wonders. They're wonders, but they lie. They don't tell you about God. What they tell you about is someone who, who manages by some power. Again, it may be the occult. It may be Satan who manages to do dazzling tricks, not from God. And you see, that's what the Pharisees are suggesting here. They're, they're not subtle in what they say. He's of the devil. But what they were suggesting, if they said that to the crowd, was, you know what our scriptures say about somebody who works healings in the name of Satan. It says he should die. We've already made up our minds about that, but we'd like you in the audience out there to decide that too. And so if the, op, if the, if the, the basic creed of Christianity, you know what that short basic creed, if we always talk about this in the new membership class, the, the simplest of all creeds is Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the earliest Christian creed. Well, if that's the basic creed by which one professes salvation, then the, its antitype, its direct opposite, 180 degrees opposite, is to say Jesus Christ is the prince of all demons. And that's exactly what we've got here. It was a frantic strategy that the Pharisees pulled out because they were losing control. And again, throw the big lie up on the screen. And then everybody will sort of fasten on that, and we won't have to really talk about the issues. I'm sure many of you recognize as we read this text that Abraham Lincoln, in a famous speech, quoted from chapter 12 of Matthew when he compared the breakdown of the union of states in our country during the Civil War to a house divided against itself, which could not stand. He made the phrase even more famous by that speech. But, of course, its original meaning here wasn't talking about a country or its states. It was talking about the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus was, was raising for these Pharisees, teasing them, I think, almost, and saying, have you considered the logic of what you've just said? How ridiculously illogical would it be if, if I am working by the power of the prince of demons to start banishing other demons and obstructing their work? Why would I do that? That's the last thing I would do. That's the worst kind of evidence for the case that you're making. Why would Satan use his power to cast out servants of Satan? But you see, I think there's just one more evidence here that Unbelief doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't even pretend to be logical most of the time. Many, many Christians get very frustrated in this day and age about things that are thrown out, criticisms and attacks on Christianity, and, and things that are just absurd. I just saw a review the other day of a new aggressive book on, on atheism, and a few quotes were, were given by it in which the man says, well, well, everybody knows, every historian knows that the ridiculous, absurd things in the book of Exodus never actually happened. Oh, really? 
Well, let's talk about that because there are lots of very credible historians and archaeologists who know that the things in Exodus did happen. So where does your superior knowledge come from? You see, unbelief doesn't have to be logical. It just has to bluster loud enough. There's so much teaching we could go into about Satan, the devil, as the ruler of evil in the Bible. We don't have time for all that today, but we know that Jesus taught in John 12, 31 that, this, that Satan was, he called him, the prince of this world who will be driven out. Paul chimed in in Ephesians 2 and said, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit now at work in those who are disobedient to God. You see, Paul was implying there's a, there's a universal cosmic aspect to, to him, but he also is at work right now in people. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God, small g. Don't ever put a capital G in when you call Satan a God. He was the little g God of this age. Ephesians 6.12 calls him a roaring lion who seeks to devour the people of God. And there are many more things you could go into. We find out in the Scriptures that just as God cannot lie, the devil cannot do anything else. He was a liar from the beginning, Jesus said. That's how he accomplishes everything. Go, go examine him in the Garden of Eden. What was his strategy? Did God really say that? He was lying. And that's how he accomplishes everything. By beguiling people with lies. And people buy them because they're presented cleverly. They, they seem attractive. They present things that are enticing to people. One writer said, our present world system is like a world in which Satan's graffiti is scrawled all over it. Some of you know that I, I like trains. I'm a train person. And it's interesting if you ever get to a railroad yard and see where there are a large number of trains and real, you know, boxcars and gondolas and all the other kinds of trains that move around today. I don't know what it is. The graffiti artists live in the railroad yards. Have you seen the trains go by? Some of them, you know, they've got the, the owner of the boxcar or the, or the rail line's name on it. But then all over the lower portion of the car, as far as somebody could reach with a can of spray paint, is this crazy artistry of graffiti. Well, that's exactly like this world. Satan has vandalized it. He's put his mark all over it. He's defaced the beauty of God in his creation. He has no clear scheme except to rebel against God and to do as much harm as he can do to thwart the purposes of God and destroy the people of God along the way. Well, the Scripture says the kingdom of God arrived in Jesus. He announced it right here. He said, if you see Satan being cast out, and, and it's ridiculous to think that it's his power doing it, then verse 28 says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God, the real kingdom, has come among you. It's here. And this is a sign of it. Remember how Jesus faced off with Satan early in his ministry. Matthew tells that epic struggle. Mark tells it, the other Gospels, that struggle, John doesn't have the record, but the others do, of 40 days in the wilderness, fasting, praying, and Jesus somehow himself personally doing spiritual combat with 
Satan's lies which came flooding into his own mind and consciousness. And how did he defeat him? There was no walk in the park. He didn't defeat him just because he was the son of God. He defeated him with a tool. And you have that tool in your lap right now. The word of God. The truth of God. How do you defeat a liar? With truth. That's how you defeat Satan in your life, by taking the truth of God, putting it in its face. He doesn't know how to answer it. Notice verse 29, interesting little figure there, sort of almost like a mini parable or figure of speech as Jesus describes what he was doing as his kingdom came to attack and tear up and and root out the kingdom of Satan. He says, well, you know, if you're going to invade, this is the only place I know of where Jesus himself compared himself to a thief. That's what he did here. He said, if you're going to rob a strong man, okay, a guy who's got a couple pistols and he's big and and he's rugged and you know he's tough, and you wouldn't be able to rob his house by just marching in and saying, hi, I'm here to rob you. You'd have to overpower him. You'd have to knock him down and tie him up, and then you could rob his belongings. What a description. That's an amazing description Jesus made of what he was doing with Satan. He's saying, look, I came into his house I'm going to overpower him, and I think he's implying that this has already begun. You know, it isn't triumphantly accomplished in full yet, but it's begun. I've I've come right into his house, I'm tying him up, and I'm going to carry off his most precious belongings. What are they? You. You are the belongings Jesus carried off right under Satan's nose. And he was powerless to stop it. There's another brilliant little passage, a, a little glimpse in Luke 10, 18, when, when the disciples were sent out to do ministry, you know, to teach and tell of Christ and heal in his name. And when they came back all bubbling over with how great it was and what God had done and marvelous things, Jesus greeted them in Luke 10, 18, and he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That sounds like kind of a mysterious comment to make. But I think he was saying, with my understanding of the kingdoms that are actually at war here, I saw in what you were doing a wonderful advance of the kingdom of God. And Satan was was as if he was falling over backwards off his throne as you were declaring the power of God. Is Satan powerful? Absolutely. Is he all-powerful? Not ever. And he's on the losing side. The temptation of Christ proves it. But most splendidly, the cross of Christ proved it. At the very hour when it looked like he had won and his people had accomplished everything they wanted to accomplish, Jesus was was dead in his tomb, over with, movement done, disciples locked up in a, a room ready to escape town. It's all over. Guess who lost? Satan. He was checkmated by the cross. It, it was like a chess player who, who was sitting there gloating, thought, thinking, oh, I've got this guy. I've won this game. And then his opponent pulls a brilliant move, checkmate. What? How did that happen? We heard it 
in our reassurance of faith earlier in the service this morning, Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle out of them by triumphing over them in the cross. If we will keep that truth in view, the power of Satan who is not all-powerful, we will always know that the one who dwells in us by faith, Jesus Christ, is always, always, always greater than the prince of this world. And Christian men and women redeemed by the blood of Christ may think of themselves like fine artifacts, uh, like fine paintings on the wall or fine antiques that, that Christ came in and valued and said, I'm taking this out of the house where it doesn't belong and putting it in my house. That's what he does as he reclaims us by his mighty power of grace through the cross. The enemy whose powers are there, they're real, is already defeated. You know, whatever you think the decisive battle is, if you think of great wars, the Battle of Midway, I believe, pretty much under, uh, decided the Pacific War in World War II. There were a lot of battles after that, but it was pretty much done for Japan after the Battle of Midway. Gettysburg pretty much decided the Civil War. There was a lot of bloodshed afterward, but the South couldn't win. Well, that's what the cross was. Battle still going on? Sure. Is it real? Yes. Are people injured? Yes. But the enemy's lost. His doom is absolutely sure, however much he rages and deceives and works upon those who are entirely ignorant of his existence. All right, well, that was a long first point. But secondly, in Matthew 12, we come to verses 31 and 32 that probably fascinate you. And here we learn that the ultimate sin of all is to denounce God's truth once His Spirit has made it clear. There's a sin that's above all others. A sin that is so far above all others that it's the only one that the Bible ever says is without forgiveness and without recourse. And that is to take the clear light of understanding that the Holy Spirit brings of Christ and the gospel and the mercy of God and throw it back in God's face, knowing it, seeing it, to say, no, I won't have it. I reject it forever. And Jesus says every kind of sin and blasphemy may be forgiven, can be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Spirit of God cannot be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Now, many, pa- many passages in the Bible have wrong interpretations, and few have had more disputing and more difficulty and wrangling than this one, mostly because people just don't know what to do with it and because they're worried about it, too. Some people say, well, how do you, how do you commit this sin? Maybe I've done it. Maybe this is true of me. Maybe I'm sitting in church Sunday after Sunday and I'm deluded and and I've actually committed this unforgivable sin. Would I know it if I had? There's a lot of perplexity about this. You see, the passage implies that you could blaspheme God and people do that all the time. I don't just mean cursing, but, but in the things they say that are untrue about God. You could blaspheme the Son of God. Places where you work, you know it happens to your ears all the time. And yet that can be forgiven. Now, it doesn't say it's automatically forgiven, but it's certainly forgivable. Anyone who comes to God and repents of sin, even of blasphemy or of cursing God, 
can be forgiven. God is the God of forgiveness and mercy, lying, adultery, theft, extortion, murder, the murder of Jesus himself. These things are all forgivable if you come and say, Father, I see my sin. I see what a wretch I am. I plead with you in the name of Jesus, forgive me. You will be forgiven no matter what it is. Well, then why is this one exempt? Well, let me tell you there's another problem too. That is our tendency to think about the Trinity, and we think, well, if I sin against the Father, that has to be the biggest, and if I sin against Jesus, well, that's really big too. But the Holy Spirit, well, he's sort of junior God. (laughs) Isn't that kind of what people think? He's sort of the, I don't know what to do with him. And so why, you know, you would think the unforgivable would be against the Father. He's the greatest, isn't he? Why against the Spirit? We have this ranking which we shouldn't have. Here's the correct way to understand this, and it really isn't complicated at all. It's simply to keep in mind the fact that only the Holy Spirit gives us the revelation of the truth of God in the first place. If you know the truth of God in Christ, if you know the gospel, you didn't know that by taking a course. You didn't know that because you're intellectually smart, Spiritual truth is spiritually understood, the Bible says. You only knew that because the Spirit of God raised the window shades of your dull and darkened mind and showed you the truth and let you at least glimpse it. And therefore, what sinning against the Holy Spirit is, is actually sinning against that revealed truth that the Spirit reveals. It's saying, I see this, I see that it's true, it's inescapable, there can't be any other conclusion than that Christ is all he said, but I won't have it. To me, Jesus is a devil. And that's sinning against the Holy Spirit, even though it's Jesus who you call the name. Because it's rejecting the truth of God that the Spirit of God has revealed. You see, This is a sin for unbelievers. It's not a sin for believers. It's a sin for the person who has sort of put their first foot onto Christian territory and said, ah, now it is all clear to me what this is all about. But forget it. I don't want it. It's not a sin of the believer who has come and in real sincerity and brokenness of heart professed Christ as Savior and Lord and says, oh my, you know, I've been, I've been bad lately. I've been neglectful of God and, and I've even resorted to some awful language and, and maybe I've sinned against the Holy... No, you haven't. You know, because the minute you say, maybe I've sinned against the Holy Spirit, I say, it's not possible. The minute your conscience says to you, perhaps I've done this, you haven't. Because the conscience of the one who has done it is like granite and has no remorse. You remember Peter blaspheming, I never knew Christ, so on, so on. He was forgiven because he asked for it later. This sin happens on those rare times when someone who has glimpsed the truth rejects it utterly and willfully and coldly. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 has the description when it says, in the case of those who were once enlightened, you see, the light dawned, they tasted the heavenly gift, tasted it on the tip of their tongue. Once they fall away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance, for they have crucified the Son of God all over again. That's it. 
That's a sin against the Holy Spirit. You can't do it by carelessness. If you're asking, did I drift into it? No, you didn't. If you're worried about it, you're innocent. But the Pharisees did it willfully, with eyes knowing what they were saying, and no desire to escape from the dark, self-imposed cave they made for themselves and no remorse. I'm a little over time here today. Let me try to conclude this. Quickly in the third place, verses 33 to 37 make a quick point for us. They say your mouth inevitably tells which kingdom you serve. Very simple point really being made here. A tree is recognized by its fruit. The words you speak. If you sing Jesus Christ is Lord from the sincerity of your heart, if that's what comes out of your mouth confessing, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that's how you are saved. With the mouth confessing. But out of the mouth also comes the rancid, bitter, lying fruit of unbelief in some cases. Words aren't mere puffs of air. They are indicators of what's going on in you. Back in Matthew 6.23, we heard Jesus say, If the light inside you is darkness, how vast is that darkness? You know, you think about the darkness of hell. How terrible to have that darkness inside you question before us today is that we would see ourselves in light of these two opposing kingdoms that are portrayed here. Which kingdom are you in? Has Satan been cast out of your life by the triumph of Jesus at the cross and your affirmation of faith in him? If so, you are in the safe hands of God. Oh, you say, but Satan's been at work on me. Sure, he has. He's a roaring lion. But let me add, a roaring lion with a chain on his foot. And God holds the chain. The fact that Satan remains near you is absolutely different than him reigning over you. You need to know that difference as a believer. Satan remains a part of your experience. Close enough to snarl and snap, maybe to claw, maybe to even draw blood. But he doesn't reign over the one whom Jesus Christ has carried out of his house and into his own arms. And Jesus says it's one kingdom or the other here. In verse 30, I didn't mention, he says, He who is not with me is against me. He who doesn't gather with me scatters Refusal to believe the light that God has given about Christ is disastrous. Let me end with a quick story. World War II, the Navy in the North Atlantic. I don't know the name of the aircraft carrier, but it's a true story that a carrier group was seeking a German attack fleet of destroyers and submarines. Very dangerous. They sent some scout planes out. Several planes took off from the carrier, and they were gone longer than had been planned. The captain of the carrier knew that his ship was in great danger in those waters with lights on all over the ship, and he finally decided, with the planes much overdue, that he would order all lights out on the deck, dark running, for the protection of the ship and its couple of thousand men and all the airplanes and so on. Well, you know, the returning planes did come back, and they radioed in. We're back. Get the deck lights on. We're ready to come down. 
The captain had enough indicators of the dangers around that he believed he could not threaten 2,000 men for four or five pilots. And he did not turn on the lights. And those pilots ran out of fuel and ditched in the freezing ocean and perished. A decision of war. What's it have to do with anything? There comes a time when God turns out the lights on those who willfully refuse His grace. And the plea we make to you is run towards the light of the gospel as God has revealed it to you. Run in that direction. Cling to the Savior. Cling to the one who has triumphed. And you can be sure He will hold you fast. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation as this? Praise be to God. Let's go directly to our last hymn today. and I'll ask that we sing verses 1 and 3 only. Verses 1 and 3 of the closing hymn.